0: Hey everybody, Roger Corville here from my home and looking forward to to being with you next month in person. You can follow along on the screen here if you're watching and or in your Bibles if you are listening. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Lord God, how Often I have been guilty of not following you immediately. Lord, I just pray that you will help us to see you more clearly today and fall in love with you more deeply. I pray the blessing over um, each and every person here and uh, pray that you will just reward them with a blessing of your word and a blessing of the message um, for just taking time to sit at your feet and hear your story. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to another Bible study here at Door of Hope. For those of you who may not be a part of our little community here, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And we've been going through the book of Mark, which is where we will be today. Hopefully you've heard the scripture reading. Um, But just before we get into this, I just wanted to let you know that we are going to start meeting again in April. So hopefully this will be the last time that you have to watch me talk to my phone and the next time you see me, it'll be face-to-face uh, for those of you who, who are able to join us. And if not, you'll be able to see the live stream, which hopefully will be, uh, will be better than this format. I know some people get used to talking to their phone to people, but I am, I'm not among them. So I'm really excited to start seeing people face-to-face and start interacting um, and, and teaching actual people instead of you know sending you know giving a message to a phone is kind of like putting a message in a bottle and throwing it out to sea you, you just have no idea of what it's doing or where it's going or if anybody's really getting it so i'm looking forward to it but enough about that let's get into uh let's get into actually the text um well Let's get into the introduction, let's put it that way. So this, this text is essentially about a, a major life change and, and career change for uh, Jesus' disciples. So I thought, you know, in my weirdness, I would look up some, some famous life changes so that you could have some random trivia. So if you go to a trivia night or if you wanna drop these on your friends, you can. So the first one is Brad Pitt. Did you know that Brad Pitt used to be a limo driver before he was probably one of the most famous actors in the world? Another famous actor, Harrison Ford, he was a carpenter for 15 years while he was trying to get his acting career off the ground. He supported his family by being a carpenter. Here's an interesting one. The present Pope, Pope Francis, do you know what he was before he was a clergyman? He was a bouncer. He was a bouncer before that. Uh, That's quite a change. And of course, uh, I didn't even have to look it up. We all know Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was the bodybuilder, Mr. Universe, turned actor, turned governor of California, and who knows what he's doing now, but a uh, multi-career man. Now, I'm, I'm bringing all this up not just because of the trivia, but, um, but just to point out, so th- here, are some, here are some career changes that made uh, a significant difference in these people's lives. But with the exception of the Pope, I highly doubt I highly doubt that any of these people were fundamentally changed by this this career change. Now they might have have changed because of the success that came with it, because of the fame and because of the paparazzi who was snapping photos of them, that might have changed them, but the career change itself was not the thing that changed them. And here's the difference. When Jesus comes to you and I, when he really comes to you, when you really come to him, when he really gets hold of you, he doesn't let you stay the same. He changes you in your most fundamental core of your being. And I hope that many of you have come to realize this. And for those of you who don't, you're you're in for you're in for more than you bargain for, let me tell you. Now, Jesus changing the fundamental core of who you are, that's frightening for some people. For some of us, we don't like change. Uh, we, we like staying the same, we're comfortable how we are, and that isn't good news that Jesus is gonna come in and be all disruptive of my life. And for others, uh, other people, um, you embrace change. You love change. You can't stand things being the same. And for, for some people I've met, change is almost like a drug. Like you got to have it over and over again. You get high on it. And of course, the danger, if, if you're somebody who's sort of addicted to change, is that uh, you're going to have Jesus for a little while, and then you're going to leave him because you know what? You, you always got to have more and more change. Um, and who knows if, you, if the change that you're looking for is the one that Jesus is trying to direct you towards. And, uh, well, one other note about change. Uh, people's political inclinations can actually be predicted by how they view change. So somebody who's, who's say, uh, socially conservative, when they see a change coming, what they also see is not just the change, uh, but they see the effects of that change, and primarily what they're going to see is how something good that already exists is going to be threatened or lost in the process of making that change. And so at, at their best, what they're going to do is, is uh, they may say, yes, this change is, is worth the loss, but very often they're going to be more inclined to say, this change will bring about some good, but there's some other good that we want to preserve that we don't want to lose in the process, so it's just not worth it. And uh, those who are more, you know, politically uh, or socially, let's say, because there's, you know, political, social, fiscal, conservative, and progressive. But someone who's socially progressive, um, they're going to see change, and what they're going to see is all the good things that are going to come with this change. They tend to not really see the losses that are going to come. They tend to not see how disruptive it's going to be. Um, but at their best, they will. They'll say, yes, this is going to be disruptive. Yes, this is going to incur losses for some people. But overall, there will be a net good that will outweigh the loss. And that's where the two sides are kind of at their best. But you, it's generally predictable how, how a person is going to, uh, how a person's going to vote or try and enact change um, based on how, or, or, you know, enact policies based on how they view change. But change itself, um, surprise, surprise, it's neutral. It's just, it, it just is what it is. You know, if you want to make cookies, uh, you have to change sugar and eggs and, and butter and, and chocolate chips or peanut butter or whatever. Uh, you, you have to apply heat. You have to apply a kind of change. But you have to apply that change for a certain amount of time, and then you have to stop it to get the cookies just right. You know, the, so the, the real issue would change. The real issue with something disruptive that's gonna, that's gonna transform life for the individual or for society is when do you, what change do you implement? You know, with the cookies, you don't put them in the freezer. Well, I mean, I guess you could, and then you have like, you know, some yummy cookie dough. But, but if you want actual cookies, you have to apply the change of heat. And that heat has to be a particular temperature, and it has to go for a particular time. So the real question, the real question for us is, who has the wisdom, who has the knowledge, indeed, who has the authority to enact change, to enact a change, both for us individually, as our individual selves, and as a society? And if you haven't noticed, over the last, well, it's probably been the last 70 years, but especially in the last uh, 10 years or so, the, the heat has been turned up on this question of who has the authority to enact change, you know? Is it, is it the individual? Do I, do I get to decide when and how and in what ways I will change and who I am? Does society get to decide around me? Does the democratic process, do the, do the governmental institutions get to decide for us? Do the experts... And the scientists, or the, or the medical doctors, or the people who are parts of the guilds, do they get to decide for us? Um, do, the, do the institutions that, have, that society has been built upon, do they get to decide for us? Who is the one who has the authority? And this battle over who gets authority, that's been playing out here in Western culture right in front of our eyes. So this question is really important for us today. And it's a question that we're actually getting into in the text here in Mark. So here's what we're gonna do. We're we're gonna take a closer look at Mark and we're gonna see two things. First, we're gonna see what Jesus' call means for these men. What his call means for these men. And we're gonna spend the majority of our time really talking about that one. Second thing we're gonna do is uh, we're gonna talk about what Jesus' call tells us about his authority. And then after that we'll have a short application so uh, let's get ripping because uh, hopefully i i can keep this from being too long uh one what jesus call means for for simon and andrew and james and john okay a little bit of background this this story takes place in the sea of galilee and the sea of galilee is not a sea it's an it's an inland lake it's a giant freshwater lake and that is a very precious commodity in the middle of the desert Human beings always collect around water because we need water to stay alive. So it shouldn't be surprising that the Sea of Galilee, this giant lake, has multiple towns around it um, because it's fresh water in a desert. But also, it's more than that. It actually provides an an economic staple that builds the economy, and that was fish. So it has something valuable that can be exported to other places so trade can move through and the, the economy gets going. And uh, you, you may know that, um, that uh, uh, as opposed to the other meats, like lamb and cattle, uh, fish was relatively cheap. As you can imagine in a desert, you don't have these lush green pastures, so you can have an abundance of cattle and sheep uh, to, support a, to support your food industry, but you do have a lot of fish. So fish is relatively cheap, while meat is expensive. Now, this includes some new characters, Simon and Andrew, and James and John. We don't know a whole lot about James and John, but we do know that, uh, that Simon, who Jesus calls Peter, and Andrew, they were from a town called Bethsaida, which was on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, John's, John's Gospel tells us that. And we know that from Mark, a little bit later on, he's going to say that Jesus was at home in Capernaum. So roughly around this time Jesus finds his home in Capernaum and which is just a couple miles to the west of, uh, of Bethsaida. I'll see if I can find a map and I'll put it on here so you can see. So Jesus and these two guys grow up not in the same neighborhood, but roughly in the same, the same life situation. I grew up in a, well, I, I spent the first 12 years in one place, and but those first 12, I grew up in a town called Central Point, which was just outside of a larger city called Medford, and the two sort of bled together even though they're different towns. It's kind of like Beaverton and Tigard. I have no idea where the line is, where one ends and another one begins. It's, so far as I can tell, it's virtually the same. And that's probably what they were dealing with. They knew what it was like to live on the sea. They knew what it was like to have fishing be the main industry. They knew, you know, maybe they were, they were, went to rival high schools, you know, and they were on rival soccer teams or something like that. So it's possible that, um, that Peter and Andrew knew about Jesus before this encounter. Um, but also, we also know from the Gospel of John that Andrew, at least, was a disciple of John the Baptist. And in John's account, he has, he has John the Baptist pointing at Jesus and saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Andrew then follows behind Jesus. And Jesus sort of turns around and says, Hey, what do you want? And Andrew goes, Uh, uh, where are you staying? You know, he's, he has this sort of nervous comment. And, uh, and Andrew and Jesus have this interaction for who knows how long. And Andrew goes back to Peter and says, We have found the Messiah, and then takes Peter to Jesus. And that's how John introduces it. Mark doesn't do it that way. Mark wants the first encounter of these guys for, for the reader to be this one here, to be the, the calling story. But we do know from John that, at the very least, Peter and Andrew know about Jesus if Andrew is John the Baptist's disciple. So, Jesus isn't some stranger who just comes up to him. They, they know about Jesus. Now, one more thing to to add to the background, and that is this: what fishing looks like. I'm not going to get into too much detail, but I'm just going to say because I'm a fly fisherman, and I grew up uh, reading this book called The River Runs Through It. And um, one of the things that Norman McLean, the author, says, perhaps fictitiously, his father really was a Presbyterian minister, but he says he has his father saying, all the men on the Sea of Galilee were fly fishermen, and John, his favorite, was a dry fly fisherman. These these guys were not fly fishermen uh, at all, but if you are, let me know, because I really want to get out, and I spend all my time being dad, and it would be nice to get out sometime. So let me know if you want to go fly fishing. I'd love to go with you. But anyhow, so... Fishing for them was not this leisurely activity where you get out in nature and unwind and you have a little sport there's there's no no leisure and no sport involved in this. It was grueling and dirty and sweaty and just. A grind. You had to haul up these nets that were had a whole bunch of weights all over them, and you had to pull, you had to drop, throw them out, and then pull them all the way up from the bottom, and with however many fish were in them, over and over and over again. So these dudes were probably really, really ripped, but they weren't like bodybuilders who were all clean. They were hairy and dirty and smelly, too. So uh, there's a part of me that wonders if Jesus was kind of looking for some, some tough you know, bouncer-looking individuals to join his entourage, but I could be wrong there. Anyway, okay, so now we're going to actually get into the text. We're going to read starting verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Okay, this is just an ordinary day, Uh, there's nothing unusual going on. Jesus is maybe taking a leisurely stroll or maybe he's out for a jog or I don't know morning jaunt. Maybe he's praying. But either way he has this encounter. Jesus is doing what he does and Simon and Andrew are doing what they do. Nothing out of the ordinary really going on here. By the way, this is a sidebar. Two things that that are a sidebar. Notice that Jesus is the one doing the pursuing here. In John's account, he has, uh, John has Andrew pursue Jesus, but Mark doesn't do that here. Mark shows Jesus pursuing, and this was uncommon, actually, in in their time. An ordinary rabbi, what, what they would do is they would stand aloof and let the students come to them. And very often they would chase off, they would shoo away their students several times before accepting them because the student had to sort of prove that you really wanted it and prove that you weren't gonna quit, that you had grit, that you, would, that you would tough it out in the long run. Jesus does not do that, he pursues. And that reminds me of a line I remember from Karl Barth, a Swiss, Swiss theologian. Uh, he has this dogmatics that takes up about two feet of my shelf. But in volume 2, verse one, uh, 2.1, he has this line that I read and I never forgot. He says, God is the one who in love and freedom seeks and creates fellowship with his creation. In love and freedom, he seeks and creates fellowship with his creation. And it's free, it's in freedom because there's nothing outside of God that constrains him to do it. And it's in love because love is what always motivates God in everything that he does. So God is a pursuing God. Second thing, we're we're still in the sidebar, by the way. This isn't part of the main thing. This is just, you know, if somebody needs to hear it. We see Jesus here working with ordinary people. Ordinary people, they don't have impressive resumes, they don't have... Um, massive skill sets. They're not from noble families. They're just, just the people that he has around. It. And I take comfort in that, you know. Jesus wasn't off in Jerusalem poaching the best students and professors from the best rabbinical schools. If he was here today, he wouldn't be off at Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Duke or, or Cambridge or Oxford or whatever. He'd be right wherever you are. Wherever I am. So if you're thinking, you know, I'm just a mom, I'm just a barista, I just drive for Uber. Um, or, or maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm barely a Christian, people wouldn't even know it, I, I suck at this, my faith is so weak. Or, or if you think, I'm, I'm a failure, I'm at a dead-end job, I can't seem to overcome my addictions to sin. He sees you, he pursues you, you're, you're one that he wants to pursue on his team. So Take courage. He isn't waiting for you to come to him. He's actually pursuing you. Okay, that's end of the sidebar now. Let's get back to the text. Verse 17. And Jesus said to them, this is Simon and Andrew again, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So I'm, I'm not a scholar of Second Temple Judaism, but from my limited research, I could not find anything that would suggest that this clever saying of Jesus, I'll make you fishers of men, is is some kind of colloquialism or, or a commonly used phrase. It, it appears to be just kind of like a tongue in cheek Jesus, you know, ooh, clever Jesus sort of move here. But it does have some precedent in the Old Testament. This idea of of uh, human beings being caught like fish, that comes in, in a few judgment passages in the Old Testament where it's like people are trying to get away and the net is thrown out. And the people, try they're trying to run, but the net catches them and pulls them up. It's, it's a sign of judgment. And that, that could be what's going on here because Jesus himself does come and say, hey, the kingdom of God is right now. And people knew when that happened that judgment was coming. And so Jesus' command to repent has a sense of urgency to it if judgment is coming, and so does this this call. So um, either way, even if it isn't something that's connected there to the Old Testament idea of judgment, they drop their nets and they follow him. So moving down to verse 19. And going on a little further, he, Jesus, saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now this is, this is a, a repetition, clearly, of, of the first story. Many of the elements are exactly the same. Here are the, the Zebedee brothers. Um, actually, <laughs> Andrew and, and Simon or Peter, their father's name was Jonas. They're the original, the OG Jonas brothers. And I don't know if they were also musicians, but... Um, I don't know. We don't hear anything about the Zebedee brothers. So if you have a side project band, you know, there's a name for you. The Zebedee brothers. Maybe it'll be a big hit. Who knows? But anyways, we have two sets of brothers. And essentially the same story. Jesus comes, says, calls them. They drop everything and they follow him. But there's one significant difference here with the Zebedee boys. And that is that they leave their father right there in the boat. This is is incredibly significant. So we need to stop and talk about this. So leaving your occupation for us is, it, it can be disruptive, but it isn't really that big of a deal. You know, people change their occupation all the time. It, it doesn't make a significant dent in our identity because many of us, even though the second question people always ask after what's your name is, what do you do? Even though that's the second question people ask, we've managed to sort of uh, uh, separate our identity from our occupation, especially if you don't like your occupation, you know. Uh, when people ask me what I do, I'm much more ready to say, hey, I'm a pastor than to say, oh, yeah, I work as a manufacturing engineer at, at uh, a mill in town here. Because I don't like that part as much as I like the, um, the pastor identity. Um, and I like the work here a lot more, too. Um, but anyway, so... Uh, leaving your occupation is one thing. For them, it would have been a lot harder because your identity was more closely tied to your work. But the reason why that was tied to your work is because men tended to do what their fathers did. So the occupation was tied to the family. So the family tie was much more tight than ours is today. You didn't grow up and move to a city away from your family. That did not happen. Uh, you, You knew in their society who you were was enormously connected to your family. So a call to leave your your family was a call to abandon everything you understand yourself to be. It was a call to make enemies. Um, their, their understanding of identity is vastly different from ours. See, the, the under, almost all human beings, until about the 20th century, their understanding of identity had to do with what I've heard this term from Marilyn Robinson. I don't know where it comes from, but this term of the givenness of life. There are certain givens to life that you don't get out of, and they they impose themselves upon you, and you just have to deal with it. So, so where you grow up, the culture you're a part of, these things are are just givens. The fact that you need you and I, we need water and shelter and food and love. <laughs> you know these. These are part of the givenness of embodied human existence. I don't get to decide, oh, I just want to live in the middle of Antarctica by myself, or I want to live in the middle of a desert, or, I want to live in space. Or in the middle of the ocean, you know, I, the givenness of life does not allow me choice in a lot of things. So for them, you know, they, they don't get to choose. They don't get to choose their sex. They don't get to choose their family. They don't get to choose the clothes they're going to wear or who they're going to associate with. They can't just move to another town. They don't get to choose which church to go to. In fact, up until, you know, the 1500s, you didn't get to choose which church you went to. There was only one. And you didn't get to choose the fact that you went to church. You were baptized when you were an infant. So um, the givenness of life really imposed itself upon them, and they understood themselves and they accepted it and said, you know, whether I like it or not, this is my life and this is who I am. We balk at this today. We, we have spent an enormous amount of energy and, and created an enormous amount of technology that pushes all these givens at bay. And quite frankly, we're offended when we think that there's some kind of given that would keep me from building my own identity from within, from understanding who I am. We think that we are owed the fact that our that, that our identity should be built from within and that it should be elastic. That I should be able to change at will who I want to I, who I want to be. So I can be a sports fan, I can be a hipster, I can be a cowboy, I can I can be whatever I want to be and, and the givens of reality need to, accept, need to accept that. That's the way that we think about it. It's what, it's what um, Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism. We actually want what we want are platforms to express our own unique individuality that's coming from within rather than who we are being mostly shaped by these givens on the outside. So today we actually um, we actually take it a step further from simply saying uh, I build my identity from within and I push back against the givenness of reality to I demand that other people recognize my expressed identity and I demand that society give me a platform to be able to express that. And I remember this uh, happening when I was in seminary. There was, uh, Tim Keller was invited to speak, and he was then uninvited to speak because there was a group on campus who felt oppressed by his invitation, by his presence, because he, uh, he has a particular take on the ordination of women. And uh, some of these people said, hey, if you invite him on campus, this will be oppressive to us because he is suppressing and delegitimizing our expressed identity, and it's taking away from our ability to, uh, to be affirmed and to express ourselves. By the way, his, his talk had absolutely nothing to do with that. Uh, with the ordination of women or anything like that. But what's interesting is that this was then followed up by another group of students who protested and said, well, we agree with Tim Keller on this. So if he doesn't get to be on campus, then we also don't have a right to be on campus. This is oppressive to us. This is not allowing us to express our identities, and this is not affirming to who we are. So here we have a demonstration of I demand that I be recognized with my own expressed identity and by the way this is not this is not just a problem with college campus snowflakes and LGBTQ lobbies okay some of you might be thinking oh yeah you're just talking about the far left no this is this is really all of us we all have our expressed identities that we want others to acknowledge uh, we all agree with um, Gosh, what's his... I can't remember the author's name, but the poem is Invictus. That go, the last line, and, you know, you can't forget it. I care not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Uh, you know, we, we, we want to be able to have control over who we are and what we do and what our life will look like. So let's not look down our noses. When we have this, you know, we, ha- we share a common philosophy, uh, with, with the world around us, it's part, of, it's part of who we are, this expressive individualism. And let's not look down our noses when we see somebody else taking the philosophy we hold to its logical conclusion. You know, the fact that we hold these disparate philosophies between being a Christian and being an expressive individual, the fact that, we, that we're hypocritical about those things is no virtue. They're just taking it to their logical conclusion. A great book that talks about, historically, how over the last, you know, three, four hundred years this has come about is a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. He says this, when it comes to how we think of ourselves, we are all expressive individualists now and there is no way we can escape this fact. It is the essence of the world in which we live, or in which we have to live, and of which we are a part. We're stuck. And I'm not disparaging our time, actually. You might be thinking, oh yeah, you're saying, roll back the clock, the world was so much better when people just, just accepted life as a given and didn't push back on it. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm actually not interested in getting into, into any of that or fighting that battle. What I'm, what I'm doing is I'm trying to point out the fact that whether it's the givenness of life that shapes us or I get to, I get to define myself from within, in both cases, we're bumping into this question I mentioned at the beginning, the question of authority. Who gets to decide who I am? Is it me? Do I get to decide and push back all, the, all these givens and demand that other people acknowledge who I am? Or do the givens impose themselves upon me? Does the authority of, the, of nature and the, and the created order or of those around me, do they impose themselves on me? Who has the authority? Jesus' call, here's, this, is what, this is why I'm not, I'm not interested in fighting that battle, because regardless of which angle you're coming from, Jesus' call is the same. It's, this, it's the same call. It's the call to forsake, to, to a forsaken identity, to saying, I don't, I, I don't acknowledge other authorities. This is offensive to us, and it's a, it was offensive to them. So that's the end of point one. In case you got lost there, what Jesus' call means for Simon and Andrew and James and John. It means forsake your identity. Number two, what Jesus' call tells us about his authority. Now I just, I just gave a little bit away right there. C.S. Lewis was right about a lot of things, but one of the things that, that he was right about that uh, comes out here is that he was really tough on this idea that Jesus was just a nice guy. No, C.S. Lewis came up with this, uh, well, I don't know if you call it a saying. He's either Lord or liar or lunatic. The real question going on here is, who the heck does Jesus think he is? That's the question Mark wants us to be asking. Who, ha- who does Jesus think he is? Who has this kind of authority to call someone out, to say, you, leave your self-understanding, leave your friends and associates, leave everything you know, and come follow me. Hey, you fall in behind me. I own you. That's essentially what he's saying. And this idea of authority is going to come up over and over in Mark. And so you're going to be hearing a lot, a lot about it coming up. The word hasn't come up, but it's going to. It's going to come up several times. So in Mark's mind, who has the authority? Well, it's this person right here. This person who was foretold of hundreds of years before, It's this person who would appear and they would bring judgment and they would bring cleansing and he would bring forgiveness. It's this person who was declared by the eternal heavenly father to be his beloved son. It's this person here, this man who endured the temptation of the devil, who is bringing the kingdom of God by bringing his own presence. It's this person. If it were anyone else, how dare he ask this of somebody else? But it isn't someone else. That's exactly who Mark is saying Jesus is. He's either a megalomaniac, or he's utterly deluded, he's insane, or he's all of these things that Mark is saying. He's not giving another way out. He's not giving us the easy, oh, Jesus is a nice guy, I really like his teaching. That's not what Mark is letting us do. Mark has given his verdict. And one more thing, okay. If you've you've been lost and haven't been paying attention, please pay attention to this. Mark hasn't taken us here yet, but I have to mention this. Jesus' authority, unlike all the other authorities we're gonna find around us, his is one in which he himself is not asking us to do anything he hasn't done. He himself left his family and his identity his career. In fact, he left more than any of us ever could. He left this eternal relationship with his, with his Father of mutual love where he was receiving and giving, receiving and expressing love indefinitely in joy and glory and adoration. He left all of that to become human and take on the vicissitudes and weakness and frailty of human life, to be tortured, to be murdered, to be abandoned by his friends, to ultimately on the cross be abandoned by his Father. Yes, he left. He's he's doing more than he ever asked anyone else to do. And this is the person with authority. Why does he do that? You know, all the people that I mentioned leaving their careers, they did that because there was some sort of advantage to be gained. Jesus' advantage was us. In my humble opinion, I don't know why he does this, other than the fact that he's crazy in love with us. He loved people do crazy things for love. Troy was destroyed because of the love of, of Paris and Helen. Um, people destroy their lives because of love. This is an authority that doesn't stand back and stay aloof. This is an authority, unlike all others, that has so much love and care and compassion, that he actually makes enormous sacrifices to bring us to himself. So that's the authority of Jesus. It's an authority that, yes, can demand our allegiance, can demand a change and redefine ourselves, but it's an authority that comes with an enormous amount of love and care and sacrifice. It's an authority that we can trust. Okay, now, here's, here's how we get involved. Some of you may be like a stick in the mud. You're, you're unyielding and unwilling to change. You're, you're not going to allow Jesus to transform you. You're an acorn that refuses the glory of an oak tree. Acorns are funny things. You know, they're, they're this big, and then they become this giant tree, a huge tree that produces an enormous amount of acorns that can be aggravating even to pick up. But it's not going to transform unless it changes. And likewise, we have something amazing and glorious that we have been designed to become, just like the acorn turning into an oak tree, and you are resisting it. My question to you is why? What other authority are you trusting to define you and tell you who you are? Your infallible self, your infallible emotions, the infallible experts who are constantly flip-flopping every 10 years? Is it the inf- the infallible authority of our government or our institutions? Who has the authority? Why not? Why not the one who created you? Why not the one who not only has the legitimate authority to ask this of you, but the one who has the love and care and compassion and empathy to cultivate your trust so that you would think I would be a fool to trust anything but him? Why not him? Now, some of you, maybe your heart's stirred. Maybe you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you're saying, yeah, I've been trying to redefine myself in so many ways. I'm going to go ahead and let God redefine me. And that's great. That's wonderful. You do that. Um, But for those of you who are maybe a little bit too willing to embrace change, you're going to run off and leave everything and you're going to make this about you and what you go and do for Jesus. Remember the text is about Jesus and his disciples. He only called 12 to leave their jobs. The rest of them stayed with their families. And we can do that too. Being faithful to Jesus does mean being faithful to our families. We can, we can stay with our families while we submit our identity to Jesus, while we uh, try to acknowledge the fact that we have decided that we ourselves and our emotions or our culture or our political parties or our, our social status, even our, dare I say, our gender and sexuality, we've let all these things become uh, Part of our identity that's inordinate and it isn't the way that Jesus defines it. My friends, let his, let his great love for you, yes, His authority, but that authority that comes with a great love, let that melt your hearts so that you desire, you long for him to change you. That you say, yes, you are the only one who knows perfectly who I am and who I am to become. Let him and let his love turn you towards him so that you bend the knee to him and say, yes, Lord, I will follow you. I will give up these things that I use to define myself and follow you. I know that's a hard message. But we need to hear it, especially in our time. I, I love you guys. I can't wait to see you. Hopefully next time uh, you're hearing this, you'll either be seeing me face to or, face or on the live stream. Love you guys.